Father in heaven, we are grateful for this, for the Sabbath. We're also grateful for this season that reminds us to reflect on that which you have given, and you, the giver of all good gifts. And today, as we contemplate some of your promises to us, may we take them at your word, and may we truly believe, and may we one day find ourselves having thanksgiving on the shores of the sea of glass. And may we be ready for that day is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. A lot has happened in the last few weeks in this country. In case you haven't noticed, we recently had an election. And I would say I haven't been a voting age that long. It's the most contentious election in my recollection, and I think many would agree. It's not hard. You just go on Facebook and spend about five minutes and see if you can avoid a political argument. You probably can't. And uh, I was overseas a couple months ago, right before the election in September, and let me tell you, the U.S. election was the talk not just of the town, not just of the state, not just of this country. It's the talk of the world. Everyone I went, uh, everywhere I went, everyone was wondering, so who do you think is going to win? And it's interesting that this election, really, even though it's over, it seems as though to many people it isn't over. And I'm not here to make a political statement. I'm not here to influence any votes because the election is over. But I do want to present a message that is couched within this context. The climate in which we find ourselves, and I think easily find ourselves getting involved in. And really, when you think about it, at the root of this of all elections, really, not just this one, but maybe more exacerbated, we see it more clearly in this one, is at the root of it, the issue at stake with an election is people want a better country. Isn't that true? One of the candidates' little slogan happened to be, make America great again. And and that's the whole point of elections. Who do you think will make this land, this country, better than it was before. That's the root, isn't it? I think we can agree on that, putting partisanship aside. And now, with the current president-elect in transition, there, and even before, there were many people threatening to say, if so-and-so were elected, I'm moving to Canada. Or... Australia, or some other country, and what are they saying? They're saying, if this is the path that, that this country goes down, if this is the decision that's made, I think that I want to move to a better country. Because this one is not as good as that other one. And now, there are people worried. There are many people fearful. There are many people elated and joyful. But all of this, these emotions are charged because one side might think, oh no, our best days are behind us, this country won't be great anymore, whereas the other side, they think, 
Now the country's going to improve. So at the root of the passion, the root of all the arguing on Facebook, the political emotion that is gripping this country, I venture to say, at the root of it, everyone wants a better country. So, as Bible-believing Christians, how ought we to respond? How ought we to process the climate in which we find ourselves right now? That's why I have selected for our scripture today Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 through 16. I want to read that once more together with you, and this will form the basis of our study today. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 through 16. The summary is, we ought to be looking for a better country too. We ought to be looking to move out. This is what it says, verse 13. These all died in faith. Now who are these? These who died. Within the context of Hebrews chapter 11, we're talking about the faithful men and women that have come before. Those that God uplifts as examples to us. Men like Jacob and Abraham and Abel and Moses and many others. What happened to them? These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly, that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they seek a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So as Bible-believing Christians, we read this passage, and I hope by the end of this message, we will remember, we will be stirred up to be looking for that better country. And so I want to take a look at this passage, verse by verse. What can it tell us? How can we apply this as we live in such an uncertain age in the world today? Verse 13 begins, These all died in faith. Having not or not having received the promises. Keyword. But having seen them afar off, were assured of them. The old King James says they were persuaded of them. They were persuaded of the promises. So these men and women who died, they never received the promise that they were given, but they were persuaded of them. And when we think about elections, isn't it all about promises? Campaign promises. A candidate promises when they get into the White House, he or she will do this or that or this or that. They will put an end to this and this and the other thing. Promises. But at the same time, well, let me, before I get there, and people get riled up. Rallies campaigning, making phone calls, knocking on doors, pounding the pavement, on the media, 
and it's all based on this candidate said he's going to do this for me, that candidate said she's going to do that for me. There is this idea that we can count on the word of our elected leaders. Is that true or not? That's what drives the emotion. But yet at the same time, we use the word politician synonymously with people who don't keep their promises. So in light of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13, I ha- I'm just bewildered sometimes, and I have to ask myself, do we believe the words of politicians more than the Word of God? Do we actually believe God's promises as much as the promises of men and women who try to run for office? Because If we say that we do, which if I ask you to raise your hand, of course, there are good avenue responses. Yes, I believe that. Then why are we not as passionate about what Jesus promised us as what the candidates promised us? Let's take a look at a moment. What's one of the promises? These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off. What is one such promise that these men and women of faith received that they did not uh, that they did not fully receive before they died. Let's look in John chapter 14. John chapter 14. You know this well. Keep your finger in Hebrews 11. We're coming back to that. But John chapter 14 verses 1 through 3. Let's take a look. It says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. In short, the promise that was given here is there is a better country, and that Jesus is coming to take us there. Yes, that's the promise, but maybe within using the political analogy that we're playing with this morning, you notice Jesus doesn't just say, I'm coming again. That where I am, where you might, there you might be also. He doesn't just say that. He says, in my Father's house are many mansions, and I go to prepare a place for you. So Jesus is actually making a promise of free lifetime government housing in heaven. Imagine if a political candidate made that promise. Don't you think there'll be support for him? Jesus, later on in Revelation chapter 22, we won't read that, but when we see in vision John in heaven, he sees the tree of life. He sees the river of life running through it. And he says, the leaves of the tree of life are for the healing of the nations. Free health care. You laugh. But do we believe that promise more than the promise that the elected officials give us? Because we look at that and we say, ha ha, yeah, that's a good point, ha, that's cute. But guess what? That's actually a real promise. Politicians here may give us such promises, but we in the back of our mind know, yeah, let's see how that turns out. But do we actually take Jesus at his word? Do we actually believe that he has a place for us? In the city? Houses? 
Candidates make promises, more jobs, lower taxes, free health care, free education, free college, erase your student loans. Jesus can give us all of that. And yet, we get all passionate. We spend hours pounding out our arguments on Facebook, arguing with people on the other side of the aisle, when what are we doing to tell people about this campaign? About the King of kings and Lord of lords who wants us to elect Him on the throne of our hearts. Jesus' word is trustworthy. Much more than any human leader who has ever lived. And so let's go back to Hebrews chapter 11. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were persuaded of them. And that leads them to action. It says they were persuaded, and they embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. It's the Thanksgiving season, so I think it's appropriate for us to talk a little bit about pilgrims. These people who saw the promises who heard Jesus give the promise with his word, even though they're not able to receive the full fruition yet, they believed it to the point that it affected the way they lived. And how did they live? In short, they lived like pilgrims. And what are pilgrims? Why do we celebrate Thanksgiving anyway? The pilgrims were the people who to use another term that might be hot on our minds right now, they were immigrants. They were people going to a new home. They were people on a journey, sojourners, passers-by. They were not people who had already established roots where they were. And so these people, they say, oh, Jesus promised he's coming in. He promised me a better country. He promised me a, a place where I can call home forever. So I'm on this earth temporarily. As sort of an imperfect illustration, many of us here are probably immigrants or descendants of immigrants. I happen to be a, what they call 1.5 generation immigrant. I came as a little kid with my parents. And when I was a kid going to school, some of you might relate, I would always, my mom would always pack me a lunch. And my lunch weren't just like peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I would have my little rice container, (laughs) right, little pieces, chopsticks, right? And my classmates would always come over and say, so what weird stuff do you have to eat today? And by looking at my food for lunch, the students could easily tell, you're not from around here, are you? And isn't that the essence of being a stranger and pilgrim on the earth? Should people not be able to look at us and say, where are you from? You're not from around here, are you? Because you don't live like us here. You don't talk like us. You eat differently. The way you spend your time and the priorities in your life tell us that there's something different about you than us. And that's exactly what 
the author of Hebrews is saying. The people who saw the promises, who believed that there's a better country, it automatically, necessarily, unavoidably affected the way they live. So people look at them and they say, where are you going? You're not from around here, are you? Tell me more. And there is a parable that illustrates this in the Gospel of Matthew. We're coming back to Hebrews 11, but in Matthew chapter 24. We see, I'm going to continue on with our analogy here, we see two campaign staff for the master who went away for a while, holding down the fort in a swing state, if you will. Who then is a faithful and wise servant? Verse 45 of Matthew chapter 24. Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Assuredly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods. But if that evil servant says in his heart, my master delays his coming and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and at an hour that he is not aware of and will cut him in two. And appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So imagine this story. Jesus, he's campaigning. He's, in the, he's trying to win the election of individuals to choose him as their Lord. And he has servants working the field. And one servant goes out and he's knocking on doors, pounding the pavement, giving meat in due season, making sure people know the promises of this king who has never failed before. But yet there's a second servant. And notice, both of these people claim to believe. Both of them claim to understand. But yet the other servant says in his heart, my Lord delays his coming. Begins to eat and drink with the drunken. Beat his fellow servant. There is this second servant, the second campaign manager, who through his life, even though with his lips he says believe, through his life he testifies that he is not planning on going anywhere anytime soon. My Lord delays his coming. Jesus isn't going to really give, fulfill his promise. He's not really coming back soon. And as a result, his life manifested that belief through his actions. One servant demonstrates that he's living as a pilgrim and stranger on the earth. And the other one says that he's a pilgrim waiting for Jesus to come, but through his life demonstrates that he doesn't really believe. And when we ask ourselves this question, which of these two servants we are, I think it's easy to know by saying, how do I spend my time? What priorities do I outline my days with? How do I spend my leisure moments? Does it reveal a priority of winning Jesus' campaign? Or does it show that we say, my Lord delays his coming? Back in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13, now we're in verse 14. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland or they seek a country in the old King James. 
You know, the word homeland in the New King James Version sort of makes more sense now in American government because now we have a Department of Homeland Security. And this concept, they declare plainly that they seek a country, a homeland, it simply means one thing. They're looking for citizenship in that country. They're pilgrims and strangers. They're headed to this new country, this better country that was promised to them, but they want to make sure that they can get past the immigration agent ready to chop their passport. How do I gain citizenship to this country if we're immigrants, we're immigrating somewhere? And so these people who say such things, by the way they live their lives, they're saying, I want to be a citizen in the heavenly country. So I want to look in Philippians chapter 3 for a moment to see what Paul has to say about citizenship. Okay? Keep your finger in Hebrews. We're coming back. So we're in Philippians chapter 3 next. Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 17. These people who believe the promises, who live as pilgrims and strangers, declare plainly that they seek a country. They're seeking citizenship in that country. Verse 17 of Philippians 3 says this, Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. Verse 18, For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. So notice what Paul is saying here. He's detailing two groups of people. Both groups of people claim to walk the walk, the Christian walk. But yet there is one group that are actually classed as the enemies of the cross of Christ. Who are these people? Paul continues, verse 19, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. Verse 20, for, in contrast to these people, Paul is saying, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So notice what Paul does here. Paul says there are two groups of people who walk in the church. Those who claim to believe the promises. Those who claim to believe that Jesus is coming soon. There's one group that follows the pattern that I'm exemplifying in my life. That group, our citizenship is in heaven. But note them, the other group, who are the enemies of the cross of Christ. They claim to walk, but they don't have citizenship. And what are they described as? Whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is their shame, and who set their mind on earthly things. So if I can put it this way, these passages tell us how we can for sure not get citizenship. So what is he talking about? Whose God is their belly? That sounds a little crude, but who worships their stomach? like bowing down to a picture of our stomach. Like, but if we think about it for a moment, what was the first sin that caused Adam and Eve to fall? Appetite. And the appetite is one of the most base uh, aspects of our human nature. So what Paul is saying here, he summarizes by saying the people who have this problem, who lose their citizenship in heaven, are those who set their mind on earthly things. They rather feed themselves and satisfy and gratify their human, carnal nature. 
then put those things to one side for the goal of receiving the heavenly kingdom. Maybe some of us, we've said this ourselves. I could never stop eating that. Give up coffee and tea? I could never do that. And we look at the Bible and we say, Lord, it's not found in the Bible. It doesn't say anything about coffee exactly or smoking or drinking or eating shrimp and pork or whatever else it might be. We say, we look for those excuses. And Paul says there are those people even walking amongst the church who care more about this than that. They set their mind on earthly things. Unable to wrestle with the crucifying of self. The denying of self. The self-control required to live as strangers and pilgrims. Because guess what? Just like we mentioned earlier. If we live just like everyone else around us, how would they know that we're going any place different? And so Paul is saying we do not need to be like those people because that's one sure way to give up our citizenship in heaven. But what about the positive? In John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night. So we looked at what we ought not to do to lose our citizenship. What ought we then to do? Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night and Jesus knows the question on his heart and he cuts straight to the chase. He says in verse 3, Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So Jesus tells Nicodemus, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, if you want to gain that entry visa, or rather the citizenship to live there, you must be born again. And born again, what does that mean? What is included? It simply means the old man dies and we are a new creature. I'm going to pause a moment to think about that. New birth. Citizenship. Let me use another analogy. My family immigrated here. And so we are not natural born citizens. We were naturalized. That's the term. It sounds sort of strange, but that's what happened. And there is a process. Some of you may have gone through it. There is a process by which you gain citizenship in this country. And I boil it down basically into two parts. You have to be eligible, and eligibility is based on having permanent resident status for a certain amount of time and things like that. And then you have to go into what they call the interview which is really like a test. And then if you pass those things, then you go to the ceremony, you can take the oath, and then you, know, you, get, uh, you get citizenship. So there's sort of two parts to getting citizenship here in this country. You have to be eligible, and if I can use a term that we're going to come back to, we have to have the title. PR, green card, permanent resident, whatever you want to call it. We have to have that first, and then we have to demonstrate two a judge, an interviewer, that we have the fitness, fitness to be an American citizen. They ask questions about civics and a little bit of American history, check your English, some of those types of things to make sure that you're able and you want to function 
as a meaningful contributing member of this society as a citizen. Does that make sense, yes or no? Two parts. If I can use terms that we're going to come back to, you've got to have the title and you've got to have the fitness. You've got to have the, the paperwork and then you've got to be able to prove that you've got the, what it takes, the ability and the desire. All right. So we're putting two things together. The new birth and the Christian experience. We want citizenship in heaven. Is it true then that we also have to have these two things to get to heaven? Listen carefully. This is found in Review and Herald, June 4, 1895, paragraph 7. It says this. The righteousness by which we are justified is imputed. The righteousness by which we are sanctified is imparted. Notice the next paragraph, or next sentence. The first, which is justification, is our title to heaven... The second, which is sanctification, is our fitness for heaven. We can have our sins forgiven in an instance, and Jesus gives us pardon next to our name in the books. That's justification. That's our title for heaven. But we have to demonstrate that we want to be there. That's what the judgment is all about. That's why there are books. That's why there's a judge. That's why Jesus has to stand and say, this person lived through my strength and demonstrates that he would rather live up here with us than to stay down there where he's at now. We have to have both the fitness or the title and the fitness in order to gain citizenship to that heavenly country. My grandparents tried immigrating here to the U.S., sort of. My grandfather from Asia, we invited him here. We wanted him to stay with us. We gave him the option, but he didn't really particularly care for the culture here, and he missed his friends and the food and those kinds of things, which is okay. So he never received permanent resident status. So he never got citizenship. He never got the title. My grandmother, on the other hand, she did want to stay. Grandkids and all of those kind of things seem to have a way with grandmothers. And so she came and she got permanent resident status, but she could never learn English well enough in order to pass the interview. And so she never was able to take the oath and she never got citizenship. Both individuals didn't get citizenship, but for very different reasons. And for those of us who claim to be walking the walk, just like Paul said in Philippians 3, we claim that we're pilgrims and strangers on the earth because we claim to believe the promises, just like those in Hebrews 11. Let us be sure that, yeah, we might have the title, we might accept Jesus, and we might say, yes, I want to go to heaven, but that's not enough. We actually have to want to be there. And how do we demonstrate that? By living the life now that testifies, I'd rather live the life there than the one that everyone lives here. Back to Hebrews 11. The good part is, you can always change your mind. This is what it says. That's exactly what it says. Verse 15, And truly, if they had called to mind that country from whence they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. So the pilgrims and strangers, Jesus doesn't force anyone into his country. He invites. He gives you the option. He gives you the choice. And if you want to go back to Egypt, if you want to go back across the Jordan and the Red Sea, you can. 
But I want to take another flip of this verse. And that is, maybe God wants to keep me out. Maybe we have those lingering doubts, you know, I'm, I'm just too bad. I just don't make the cut. I struggle too much. I'm such a bad person. Surely God is going to keep me out of those pearly gates. I'm not going to make it. Maybe we're plagued with those doubts. Maybe God's going to build a wall and keep me out. Maybe he'll round us up, deport us. What are we going to do if we have those doubts, but we really want to be there? I have a promise for you. This is found in the Gospel of John. John chapter 6. John chapter 6. Jesus himself speaking these words. Verse 37. John chapter 6, verse 37. Jesus himself, it's in red letters in my Bible. Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. So Jesus gives us the option. If you don't want to come, you don't have to come. But if you want to come, there's no way. There is not a chance I'm going to let you go. You don't have to worry about me rounding you up, deporting you, or trying to keep you out. All are welcome here. And Jesus promises never fail. And now we come to verse 16. Hebrews 11 and verse 16. It says, These all died in faith, not having seen the promises. Sure. And we go through what all of these individuals did. But then verse 16 says, But now they desire a better country. Right? We've been talking about this whole time. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. God is not ashamed to be called their God. It's sort of interesting the the use of this phrase. God is not ashamed to be called their God. Like, has he been ashamed of us up till now? But I think it is in the context of what's going on here. God is saying, these people believe my promises and by faith claim them. They live according to them. And they actually live as though they believe that I am coming for them. And because they're not ashamed of me, I'm not ashamed of them either. I want to drill a little bit deeper in this concept. God is not ashamed to be called their God, I believe, because these pilgrims and strangers are not ashamed to call him God. And what does that lead to? What kind of result does that kind of faith in God lead to? Is it just a bed of roses? Victory? Winning all the time? There is some of that. Well, let's take a look in uh, Hebrews 11, verse 33. What does it look like when people aren't ashamed to call God their God? Verse 33, speaking of other men of faith, it says, Who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. So on one hand, there's like victory. They're going forth conquering and to conquer because they're not ashamed of God. And God grant them success. Yes, there's some of that. But continuing, verse 35, 
others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. Whoa, wait a minute, these are the people of faith? They went through all of this? Yes, they did. Verse 39 says, And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. Tying it right back to Hebrews 11, verse 13, they saw the promise, but not ever having received them, were persuaded of them. And in verse 39, it says again, these are the promises, or the people who received the promises, they endured all of these things. Yes, some of them had victories, but many more suffered, were tortured. They lost everything they had. And Jesus, God, says, because these people were not ashamed of me, I'm not ashamed of them. And so when we read this passage of Hebrews 11, 13 through 16, yes, there's a better country. Yes, there's a tree of life. Yes, there are those mansions over the hilltop. Yes, there are all those things. But let us not be ashamed of Jesus Christ and his gospel, even if before the reception of that promise, we have to go through some dark times here. Why do I bring all that up? Because all throughout this election, this strange and contentious election, and even after this election was over, people have, well-meaning, I believe, have spouted off online and other places, well, whoever is elected, God is in control. Have you heard that? Now, is that a true statement or not? Yes, of course that is a true statement. Yes, God is in control. But I want to think about this a little bit deeper. If things don't work out, if there is some inconvenience or pain or some, you know, discomfort that comes down the road, is it therefore then God's fault since it was all in his control? You understand the danger in making it all God's will, whatever happens. Because let me make, it, let me make the point this way. Yes, indeed, God is in control, but it may not necessarily be the revelation of his ideal will. There is a difference. Moreover, when we say God is in control, we are not saying that God predestinates everything that's going to happen. God will not supernaturally step in, violate the freedom of human will in order to prevent some calamity that we brought upon ourselves. But through it all, when we say God is in control, what we're saying is no matter what happens, no matter hum- what poor choices humans might make or whatever circumstances may be, God, through those imperfections, can still accomplish his will. And so what am I trying to say? Yes, God is in control, but let's not make that a cop-out to blame God if things don't work out. Because let's think for a moment, all of these individuals in Hebrews chapter 11, God was not ashamed of them because they were not ashamed of him. Even when things appeared to go very, very wrong. 
Imagine being stretched out on a table about to be sawn in two. It sure looks like God is no longer in control. Are you still going to be unashamed of that God then? Are you going to be unashamed if you are left in a den of the mountains, wondering where everyone has gone? God is still in control in that moment? Yes or no? Yes! But it sure won't feel like it. His will is accomplished in spite of our choices, not because of them. And a perfect case in point. Back in the Old Testament, the Israelites, they decided that they wanted a king. Was that the will of God that they have king? No. But was God still in control? Yes. But if you follow the history of the Israel kings and then later the divided kingdom, all the kings, what was the final result? It was Babylonian captivity. Was God still in control? But was it his will? No. So when we think about the future, not just of this country, but the unrest in the world, we can have assurance, yes, that Jesus is in control. Yes. But it doesn't mean that everything's going to continue on business as usual. It doesn't mean that God is going to supernaturally prevent painful things from happening in our experience. There might be fiery furnaces down the road, just like for those Hebrew boys. There might be a lion's den at the end of this road, just like in the story of Daniel. But God is in control. How? He'll walk with you through the flames. He'll go into the lion's den with you. He will still accomplish His will even through the imperfection of fallen humanity. Under all circumstances, Will we remain unashamed of our God so that He might say that I am not ashamed to be called their God? I want to share this passage with you. It's in Isaiah chapter 40. God is in control, yes. And because of that, we can... we. Sh- do not need to be ashamed of being called his people. And here is a powerful passage that I think gives us the context in which the process, all of the stuff that's happening around us right now. Isaiah chapter 40, beginning in verse 15. Notice what it says. The, 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 the word pictures that are used. Verse 15 of Isaiah chapter 40. Behold, the nations are as a drop in a bucket. We use that figure of speech quite often, but in the eyes of God, it is literally a drop in the bucket, the nations, and are counted as the small dust of the scales. Not just the scale with a weight on it, but a scale with specks of dust on it. That's how big our recent presidential election was in the scale of God's universe. Look, he lifts lifts up the isles as a very little thing, and Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor is be sufficient for a burnt offering. Verse 17, all nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted by him less than nothing and worthless. This is the God that we serve. This is the God who has given us the promise of a better country, of mansions, of the tree of life. And so... What have we talked about today? Hebrews chapter 11. A better country. Do we want to be there? 
How do we get there? Four, four things. In summary, the four steps, if you will, or the four things that we can apply from this passage. Number one, let us believe His promises. Believe His promise more than the words of any human leader. Because men will fail us, but Jesus will never fail us. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways beyond our ways. His word, he says, never returns unto him void. His promises cannot fail. And he is coming again. That's number one. And number two, as a result of that belief, may we live the lives of pilgrims and strangers. May individuals looking at us say, you're not from around here, are you? May they look in us and recognize that we are people not intent on staying on this planet, but that we have a destination in the better country. And may we set our affections on things above and not on things on the earth, which leads us to the third thing. Let's make sure we gain citizenship in that country. The title and the fitness. Both gifts from from Jesus Christ the imputed righteousness of Christ and the imparted righteousness of Christ, justification, sanctification, the new birth experience, the new creature being born of the water and of the Spirit. Let us pass that citizenship test by making it through the immigration booth and getting into that heavenly country. And number four, let us not ever, let us never be ashamed of our God. So that he can say that he's not ashamed to be our God. Because he is in control. He always has been. Always will be. While we may not understand why certain things happen, when they do, and how they do, we can rest assured, just like the men and women of Hebrews 11, who died in faith, that God has prepared a city for them. And in the last verse here as we close, 2 Peter chapter 1, the final exhortation, if you will, from Scripture. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 10. It says, Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May we be found in that better country that day when Jesus comes. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org